Greetings in the name of the Most High, His Imperial Majesty, Emperor Haile Selassie, I, Jah Rastafari, and welcome to the Reconscious Medical Hour, right here on the Notorious Adam Dunn Network. I'm MC Rasa Stevie, the CIO of the Reconscious Medical Group, and today we have the CEO of the Reconscious Medical Group with us, Dr. Mark Bronstein, that's Dr. Mark with a K, and our esteemed special guest, Roger Steffens. So today, we're going to bring forward a really interesting program connecting psychedelics, the history of psychedelics, the music of reggae, the message of Bob Marley, all wrapped up into one big boom clues of love and honor. The Reconscious Medical Group is a group that's dedicated to prying open the third eye of people worldwide. Our projects are to train and educate the clergy, the politicians and doctors on how to use psychedelic psychotherapy in a method that has previously been unexplored. Our mission is to bring forward uh, your true inner conscious real self. Many people live from their scars or from their trauma or from their drama or from their depression. And through our revolutionary protocols of using psychedelics, we can help uh, guide you on a journey to become your real authentic self where you designate a new driver, the real authentic positive ultimate you that is available to you at all moments. So we move people beyond living from their scars and we move them in to the realized self as our contribution to global awareness and global peace. And today I'm really, really excited to have one of my greatest friends in the reggae music industry and an absolute renaissance man in, in so many different um, avenues. I can't even begin to tell you, we have Roger Steffens, who Bob Marley nicknamed Ross Roja. Ross Roja is an actor, author, lecturer, curator, editor, photographer, reggae archivist, broadcaster, director, producer, Ganjaman, psychedelic kingpin. I could garden, I could go on and on and on about this wonderful guest that we have today. I'm really, really stoked. He started his professional radio career in New York in 1961. He's been acting professionally in film, television, and theater since 1964, including uh, numerous appearances, but one that you'll all know of in Forrest Gump. He is the curator and the creator of the, of the Reggae Archives, which is one of the most, the, well, the largest collection of reggae and Bob Marley memorabilia records, photos, buttons, cassettes, everything you could ever imagine in reggae music. Roger is the owner and, and creator of all of this wonderfulness. He's one of reggae music's biggest cheerleaders, and he's been working in the field of psychedelics um, since the 60s. So welcome, Ross Roja. Thank you so much, Stevie. It's great to be here with you and Mark today. We're really excited to have you, King. And, you know, we got so much to talk about, but let's start at the beginning. Can you tell the people about your first acid trip? Oh, yeah. I was in the Milwaukee Repertory Theater's resident company in 65 and 66. And while there, I hung out with a bunch of Milwaukee poets. And Milwaukee is a fascinating place. They had a socialist mayor for about 40 years in the last century. And it's a very, very hip place that you wouldn't automatically think of as a, a center for 60s consciousness. And I was hanging with a, <laughs> an exterminator Zen master poet named Bob Watt, who exterminated cockroaches by telling them to leave, and they went. And um, Bob wrote deliberately bad poetry so you could compare your own to his and feel much better about your own. <laughs> and he introduced me to a couple of young fellows who were uh, among the chief acid dealers in Milwaukee at the time. And I, I lived in their little apartment with them. And they would get, this is when acid was still legal. They would get like five pounds of raw acid. It looked like a bag of confectioner's sugar direct from Sandoz in Switzerland, the realest real thing. And they would spend all day and all night filling gel caps by hand with the acid. There was no scientific rigor to this. God knows how many mics I ingested on my first trip. But I had never even smoked a joint. In fact, it wasn't until I got to Vietnam about a year and a half later that I smoked my first joint, because once you've had an H-bomb, what do you need a firecracker for? 
And uh, <laughs> so we dropped acid with Bob Watt uh, early one evening, and we were up all night tripping around town, and we ended up at sunrise on the shores of Lake Michigan, and Bob and I both saw hundreds of Vietnamese peasants in conical hats planting rice in Lake Michigan. <laughs> really vivid hallucination, and Bob was seeing the same thing. And it was a precursor for me, because I ended up spending the last 26 months of the 60s in Vietnam when I got drafted. So uh, that, that was my first trip, and, and it was so much fun. I, you know, I, I'd watch these two guys... Uh, be awake for like seven or eight days <laughs> as they filled the gel caps and they were so stoned and so uh, euphoric for all that time and I figured well it doesn't look like a bad thing to me I gotta try this and uh, what, what year was that Roger that was uh, June of 1966 and I had just begun reading poetry in schools, doing a one-man show called Poetry for People Who Hate Poetry. And it was all living American writers, Bob Watt and others, uh, and E.E. E. Cummings, who was dead, but he was too good to ignore. And I, I had a big kind of Catholic school circuit when I began this show. And in July, about a month after I had started taking acid, I got a call from a nun and she said, do you do banquets? And I said, oh, sister, I am so good at banquets. It's just oh, <laughs> terrific. I'm, I'm great at bank. I'd never done a banquet in my life. <laughs> and so she said, Sister Corita. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember her, but she was the calligraphic artist and she did the big love posters and painted the, uh, the tanks outside the Boston airport and eventually left the Order of Nuns. Sister Corita Kent, she was scheduled to be the banquet speaker and she canceled at the last minute. So they hired me to speak to the um, National Association of Catholic Art Educators. And during my talk, I mentioned something about LSD. And when the banquet was over, I went out to the lobby and uh, a nun and a couple of brothers and a priest came up to talk to me and they wanted to know if I had ever taken LSD. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I had it. <laughs> and they said, do you know where we could find some? <laughs> so I said, you want to come back to my place? I'll hook you up. <laughs> so we went back to the apartment with the two acid dealers with this big table filled with mounds of raw Santos acid, and they dropped. The nun, the priest, and actually it was three brothers, and one of them was a little short guy from Cleveland, Brother Lawrence. And he's lying on a couch. And he's sitting there, or lying on the couch. Check your phone. His eyes are closed. And he's going like this. Oh. 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 And I go, Brother, what are you seeing? And he says, Oh. I'm rolling bubbles of air, and inside everyone is the Madonna. <laughs> so I stayed in touch with these people, and when I got out of the army at the beginning of 1970, I looked them up, and all five of them had left the order, and four of them had <laughs> left the church completely, so my work was done. <laughs> tell us Roger <laughs> tell us Roger about uh, the psychedelia experience and what that has brought to your life well I, I'm a victim of 15 years of Catholic miseducation they do teach you how to write and speak and I'll always be grateful for that <laughs> I, I was the New Jersey State Oratory Champion for the American Legion in 1960 the Constitution a barrier against tyranny do you have a spiritual connection with Catholicism? As Not anymore. <laughs> but, but did you before LSD, Roger? Uh, no, I'd left the church by then. I left the church in college. Um, 
yeah, I, I kind of saw through all of it finally, but uh, acid just cemented that for me. And uh, the, the, the great thing about acid, because I've always been a kind of visual person too. I've always carried a camera wherever I go. Um, was that as Teju Cole, that very astute critic for the New York Times, the photography critic said, um, photography helps you see the thing behind the thing. And I think that's an apt description of LSD. It helps you see the thing behind the thing that underpins it all. And the connections, the absolute connections. Uh, Leary talked about that. I had him on my radio show in 86 in LA and, and he, uh, I want to get the quote. He, he talked about the, the 20th century and how it was the most important century ever because uh, it introduced quantum theory, relativity, probability, expressionism, um, psychic, uh, psychedelic art, and pointillism, surrealism, jazz, probabilities and improbabilities. So it's, it's a way of seeing beyond and seeing the connections. And that's what I loved about it. Plus, just great imagery, just great trippy imagery. And with my photography on the Instagram site that my kids run for my pictures uh, called The Family Acid, um, they, uh, I, I have a lot of double exposures, which, which helps me show other people how I see, especially when I'm, when I'm on acid. It's called that because our daughter Kate said when she was growing up, all her friends told her our family was like the Waltons on acid. <laughs> so go to Instagram and put in the family acid and you'll see about 3000 pretty trippy images. I threw up a link for the chat room here. Uh, so the family acid is an Instagram page that Roger's kids put together. That is basically the photo documentation of Roger's illustrious and varied life um, beginning before Vietnam and all the way through the present. So I highly encourage you guys to check out the family acid on Instagram. It's a photo documentation of our special best for today, Roger Steffens, uh, who is bringing us a, a wealth of history and psychedelia. Roger, tell us some of the people who the psychedelic movement has introduced you to and what's your relationship to those people? Oh, I've met some fascinating people. Dr. Oz, the original Dr. Oz. Mark, you may know him, Oscar Janiger. Oscar Janiger uh, did a fantastic experiment in 1951 at UCLA uh, where he used Sandoz acid uh, with 100 artists. And he had an old-fashioned, really old-fashioned uh, Kachina doll, a big, big one. And he got together over uh, the year with a hundred different artists, sculptors, watercolors, painters. And he gave them each, as he said, I gave them the medicament. And he started out by having them make their interpretation and whatever their medium was of the Kachina. And then he gave them the acid. And at the height of the trip, maybe three hours in, when their heads were just exploding, he said, okay, do it again. And then <laughs> when they were down and they were completely back, he said, all right, now do it a third time. And one night, Dr. Oz brought all 300 images over to the house and showed them to us before, during, and after. And it was just amazing because most of the imagery initially was almost photographically real. And then the, the ones done at the height of the trip, you know, the things were exploding out of the Gina's head and there was swirls and all kinds of, well, psychedelic effects. And then the third one was kind of an amalgam of both. It became a little more realistic, but it had much more freedom. And every one of them was required um, to write out their trips, everything they could remember of their trips. And that became part of his permanent files. And he gave acid to Cary Grant, quite famously. He gave it to a dear friend of mine, Waldo Salt, who wrote Midnight Cowboy and Coming Home and all kinds of famous Hollywood movies. I dropped acid with Waldo on his 60th birthday, in fact. Um, was it all LSD or were there any, was any psilocybin being taken back then? 
I, no, I'm sure there was, but I never came across it. Um, no, it was always it was the, the pure acid. I probably tripped a hundred times. Uh, but it, it just gave me an entirely different way of looking at things. And, and the, uh, the euphoric effect of it was, was just marvelous. I've never had a bad trip. I don't understand people. Well, I, I do. I understand why people have bad trips. They do it without the proper set and setting, as Tim always said. Tell us what you mean by that. Tell us what the proper sense Your mindset is terribly important before you do something as psychologically upsetting as dropping acid. If you're dropping the real stuff, um, you've, you've got to go in in a positive state. If you're uptight about something in your life, it's probably not a good idea to drop. But I, I've always been a very positive, uh, happy person. And... Uh, I, I drop it to to take my brain for a bath to 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 learn more about myself and uh, the setting. You you need a ground person. You, you <laughs> the last time I dropped was on my seventy first birthday seven years ago, and we told our kids to stay by the phone because Mary, my wife, and I were both going to drop, and that was like for the first time in maybe thirty years, and. <laughs> About 10.30 at night, we call our daughter, Kate, and I said, Kate, I'm at the sheriff's station. Mary and I have been arrested. And I hear her yell and race for the car keys. I said, no, 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 man, I'm, I'm kidding. And Roger. Mary says, your dad is still tripping. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a dirty trick to play on her. She's a good kid. <laughs> Tell us about your relationship with Alfred Hoffman. Well, I, you know, I, I was on KCRW, the NPR station in L.A. for 10 years, the, the entire decade of the 80s. Um, and... I did a variety of shows. I, I, the biggest one was the reggae beat. That was the most popular non-commercial show in all of Los Angeles at the time. I did an African show. I, I'm the guy who turned Paul Simon onto Lady Smith Black Mombazo. Mm. And uh, I did a poetry show and um, a 60s show called Sound of the 60s. And in 1989, I did a four-part series called acid in the 90s and i i took pains to say a lot of what you're going to hear is from people who have experienced acid at the time it was legal i'm not trying to proselytize i'm not trying to tell you that you should go out and drop acid now because i know it's illegal but i want you to know what that period was like and i got in a hell of a lot of trouble for it and uh, the final show, the fifth show, we had scheduled with Dr. Albert Hoffman himself. And I was so excited to meet him. And, uh, you know, here's, here's his book, LSD, My Problem Child. And um, if I'm not mistaken, it's autographed by him. But I didn't meet him. I asked another man at the station named Mitchell Harding to do the interview because Mitchell had a, a training as a science, as a scientist and was one of the people that Dr. Oz used in his original 1951 artistic experiments. So I thought with the gravity that this older man would bring to the show, I wouldn't get in trouble again. <laughs> so I, I let him take over the entire show that week. And afterwards, Hoffman wrote him a beautiful letter and said, this is the best interview of my entire life. And it's now um, part of the archives in Switzerland at the Hoffman Foundation there. So I, I, in the future, I'd like to do a show with you about that interview, but uh, I, I haven't had a chance to listen back to it yet uh, in a long time. I, I spent most of the morning going over the Timothy Leary interview. Would you like to hear Tim now? Please. Yeah, but real quick, Dr. Albert Hoffman, for those people that don't know, is the guy that discovered LSD by um, making, Roger, correct me if I'm wrong, he was uh, working as a chemist and he put his hands 
in this liquid. And then on his way home, riding his bicycle, he found himself tripping his face off. And so the next day he went forward to his lab again. I was like, what was it that I put my hands in and discovered LSD? Is that the true story? Well, it's kind of. It was 1938 when he first synthesized it, but he never really took it until 1943. Five okay. Years. Yeah. So um, I had Leary on my show, and I wanted to... This was 1986, the week the Iran-Contra scandal broke. He was beside himself. That bastard Reagan, everything is going to come crashing down. We finally got him. It'll, oh, he'll be suffering for the rest of his life. They're going to throw him out of office. It's everything we've been hoping for. Yeah, lots of luck with that. Um, so I, <laughs> I have the tape queued up of Timothy Leary talking about his relationship to acid. Okay. You are with the Reconscious Medical Hour. I'm MC Rasa Stevie, the CIO of the Reconscious Medical Group, and we have Dr. Mark with a K. He's the CEO of the Reconscious Medical Group, and we're using psychedelics and psychotherapy and mind for mind expansion and personal growth. Today, we have our special best. His name is Roger Steppens, known as Ross Rojah. He's a true renaissance man of psychedelia, reggae. He's a, an amazing actor and artist and photographer. And I highly encourage everybody to check out his Instagram page, which is called The Family Acid. And it is the photo documentary of Roger's life, which is absolutely fascinating. And we could have Roger on this show like 25 times. You're tuned into the Adam Dunn Network right here on YouTube. And we appreciate each and every one for reporting in and being part of our show today. We're here every Sunday at 420 Mountain Time. So tell a friend and tell an enemy, if you want to expand your consciousness, this is the place to do it, the Reconscious Medical Hour. Roger Steppens, you have something to play for us that Timothy Leary says. Right, this, is, this is the 12th of December, 1986, on Roger Steppens' Sound of the 60s on KCRW, and the next voice you'll hear is Tim Leary. saying how many times I've made love. Not enough, not enough, but not enough. All right, now that, that's the crux of what oh, I guess you know. Not enough. I'm signing this book to a How many times has he taken you some early uh, books from your career that Hank Holmes dug out of his archives. Um, you, you, there's no such thing as too much then. In other words, uh, despite the fact that... Well, sure there is as too much. Oh, oh is there? Gosh, yeah. Well, well, well when should that run? Well, All right. Uh, see, how. I'm very much interested in cyberpunk computing and all that right now, but I, I will talk about drugs. I'll talk about anything. I have used and still use every drug in the book, at least every year. Just on a Catholic has Easter duty. I try to use every single drug out there at least once a year. And I've used probably more drugs than more than many people around at 66, my age, that have used as many drugs for as long time as I have. Or look as good as you do at 66. And the reason for that is I do it with prudence and intelligence and caution and aesthetic uh, uh, sensitivity. And uh, uh, I don't want any surprise, well, surprises, yeah, but I want safety nets. So if you're going to live a life of uh, courage and a life of exploration, you got to have safety nets. You just can't go blasting off and, and charging uh, out there without uh, a lot of uh, connections and support systems going so that... Uh, uh, yeah. Why did you find it necessary in the 60s in many of your manuals and, in fact, in the records that we have here today to take people on their trip into the death experience? Well, you know, that was uh, when we started uh, the psychedelic experience research, we didn't know anything about it. There's nothing in Western literature, psychological literature, prepared it. So being sensible of minded scientists, we said, where is the literature here? We went back to Buddhism, our first scientific manual, how to manual, how to use this LSD or how to have a psychological experience or how to have a mystical experience based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead because these guys have been doing it and we changed it to the dying. And uh, then uh, we, uh, we studied the other traditional literatures of mysticism, Gnosticism, Sufism, uh, Christian mysticism on and on, uh, Kabbalism. And often they use the concept of death and rebirth in the sense of uh, the winter and the spring and so forth. So we use that for maybe six months. You must realize that 
uh, I've been experimenting with the drugs for 26 years, so we've run out of metaphors. We, you know, which mm-hmm. reason metaphor it works for six months, and you keep changing it. So mm-hmm. that uh, we have not used the uh, concept uh, of dying for for at least 20 years. Another thing about it, you notice that records you played. Mm-hmm. The first few years you were studying consciousness and, and psychedelic drugs, we were so innocent and and uh, and sincere. We're using the religious metaphor all the time. Like I was in that record mm-hmm. 20 years ago saying, Talking about the chalice. Yeah. yeah, the chalice and all that. Not unlike the Rastas with marijuana. The reason we did that was a comforting thing. This was also new and strange and bewildering. Hey, we said, you're going to go into a part of your brain where there ain't nothing material and there's nothing that has anything to do with the 20th century. You're out there confronting four and have years of neurological evolution. We're like, oh, God. So we tried to make it comforting. We used the metaphors of, of a God experience or of a, uh, of a death rebirth experience or of, uh, the chalice and the philosopher's stone, deliberately using the poetry and the ritual language of the past to give people a link, a, a, a chain of significance back there so that we'd remind you this is something, not something new, that the most thoughtful and, and uh, influential human beings for a thousand years have been doing this, granted that the uh, the methods get more precise, and uh, the metaphors uh, change. So that's why we. But uh, today, I would no more use the word God than I would use the word, you know. Would you accept a term like "all that is" instead of God? I, well, I'm not here to accept or reject. Are you religious well, in the traditional it. sense, Doctor? There must be some sense of awe at all that you've encountered. Absolutely, I'm definitely odd. Not odd. But odd. I'm odd, <laughs> awful, and odd. But odd. <laughs> yeah. So that's a little taste of Tim Leary looking back on his life. I had a, a sign that I put over our front door uh, back when Stevie and I first met many years ago. And it said, it was a quote from Tim. And in fact, in my latest book, The Family Acid California, it is the frontis uh, piece. LA is where the migrants and the mutants and the future people come, the end point of terrestrial migration. <laughs> and I, I asked him about that, and he said, yeah. And he said, you know, Westerners are just Easterners who've become enlightened. And um, he said that, that phrase, it's an obvious geoneurological observation. Uh, L.A. is a place to go to change, to grow and make things happen. Um, and uh, he, he then repeated his catchphrase, think for yourself and question authority. And that, that is his motto for living. Have you noticed much of a psychedelic community in, in L.A. currently? There is uh, among younger people. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I did a poetry show recently and uh, somebody gave me four tabs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure this is the right time to take them. <laughs> take them all, Roger. Take all four, bro. We're megadosing now. <laughs> You're megadosing with Roger Steffens and Dr. Mark with a K here on the Reconscious Medical Hour. Roger, you know, to give people a little bit of historical perspective and who you are and what role you played, tell us about your relationship with a guy named Count Jean. Oh, Jean de Bretagne? Jean de Bretagne. Thank you. Ooh. Well, my tale is a long one. I'm going to be 78 in a few weeks. I was raised a conservative Catholic. I worked for William F. Buckley in New York for a while. I voted for Goldwater in my first presidential election and wept the night he lost. And then I went to Vietnam and I saw the whole lie behind it all. And within three weeks, I was no longer (laughs) hung up in strange conservative suspenders, as my friend Bob Watt, the exterminator poet, would say. Um, And when I came back from Vietnam at the end of 69, I spent most of 1970 driving back and forth across the country three times, lecturing in all these schools where I used to read poetry. And a lot of these were in very conservative parts of America in the Midwest. 
And I was able to speak to things like the Lutheran Laywoman's League in Wisconsin <laughs> and the, um, the, the Republican Women's Club in Davenport, Iowa, people who never would have willingly booked an anti-war speaker. But I put together a show with 300 slides and explained my transformation, just my own personal experience. And, and why I came back to work against the war. And, and I did that throughout 1970, three times cross country. And I didn't want to be an American anymore. I feel the same way I feel now, only I couldn't, I can't imagine it, anything could be worse than 1970 when America was still fighting that unjust war. But now has proven <laughs> to be worse than anything I, I've ever experienced. And I, I didn't want to be an American anymore. And I had married a war correspondent I met on the island of the Coconut Monk in the middle of the Mekong River, um, an island of 6,000 pacifists led by a four-and-a-half-foot-tall hunchback monk who hadn't lain down in 20 years, slept sitting up in the lotus position. <laughs> 6,000 pacifists living in this religious Disneyland in the middle of the Mekong. And they would fire rockets and mortars over the island, but never touch the island itself. And anybody who came without a weapon was welcomed, no questions asked. I dropped acid there once. And um, so uh, Cynthia Koppel, my wife and I, decided that we didn't want to be Americans anymore. And at the end of 1970, we moved to Marrakesh and lived in the Medina for most of that year which taught me that I was an American and I enjoyed indoor plumbing. <laughs> we, we came back. <laughs> but that was quite an experience to, to live in a, an Arab country for almost a year. And during that time, um, I had been given a letter of introduction uh, to a countess who lived in a 40-room palace in Marrakesh called the Villa Taylor. And her late husband owned uh, all the uh, French language newspapers in French colonial Africa. And she had the biggest private ca cactus garden in, in all of North Africa. And her, her family were among the richest, uh, most aristocratic, or her husband's family was the aristocratic family. And, uh, she doted on her son, Jeanne, who was just about to turn 21 and inherit the title from his late father as the Comte de Bataille. And in early July, the Countess sent over one of her servants to our place in the Medina and said, Jeanne, my son has just returned home and I want you to meet him. So we went right over to the house. This was on a a Monday, and he was with Marianne Faithful, the singer. And they told me that 36 hours earlier in Paris, they had broken down a door in the Marais and found um, the door's lead singer dead in the bathtub. And they fled the country immediately, jumped on a plane and flew to Marrakesh. So I, I was very disturbed by that. And I, I, it was now Monday and he supposedly died early Sunday morning. There was nothing in the International Herald Tribune. There was nothing on Radio Luxembourg. Tuesday came and went. Wednesday, still no word. And I began to think that they were just so drugged out of their heads, they, they were making this whole thing up. And then on Thursday, the news broke, and he had already been buried in Père Lachaise. Um, they were both junkies. They did stuff in front of me. Uh, thank God I've never been into hard drugs at all, because they probably would have killed me. There is some thought that the uh, drugs that killed both Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix came initially from the Count. Um, and there's a friend of mine, Stu Samuels, who's writing a book and making a documentary about this right now. Um, so it was, it was tremendously disturbing. And uh, a year later, the Count died of an overdose of heroin. Wow. Yeah. So you're saying that the guy that 
gave Jim Morrison of the Doors the heroin that he overdosed on was the same kid you were hanging out with in Marrakesh, Morocco. Who'd have ever thought? Yeah. Crazy. Funny how life throws curves, huh? Speaking of throwing curves, have you ever been to Israel? Yeah, I did uh, five shows with my Life of Bob Marley multimedia show. Um, we played the um, uh, Jerusalem Cinematheque. We played the Tel Aviv Art Museum. We played in a, an arts community up in the hills of uh, Galilee. And oh, we played in the Rasta Kibbutz, Stevie, in the middle of the Negev Desert. I wish I could show you on the wall right here. I got the, the Hebrew poster for it. Um, we played in this uh, kibbutz, uh, Zalim, in a red, gold, and green pub run by Ras Hudi, who had all the latest seven inches from Kingston that he played six <laughs> nights a week with, with guys with yarmulkes and dreadlocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, reggae is very, very popular. There's a wonderful man named Gil Bonstein who brings a lot of uh, art, artists over, and he was our tour guide. And we went all over the country with him. Did you drop acid in Israel? I got what? Did you drop acid in Israel? No, no, no. When I'm working, I, <laughs> you know, I try to keep a straight head. <laughs> where, where else did you travel with work, Roger? Oh gosh, I, I you know I, I in '84 I was invited to the American Film Institute for the National Video Festival, and the man putting it together with the wonderful name of Bob Wisdom, um, a, a former reggae jock himself, um, invited me to come and show my boop, my unreleased film collection, and uh, that was the same night that Jonathan Demme introduced Stop Making Sense. We were on a double bill. And uh, I got a, a really nice write-up in, in uh, Hollywood Reporter and the Daily Variety, and I started getting requests from uh, other places uh, to come and do my Bob Marley show. I said, well, I didn't realize I had one, but I guess I do now. So it consisted of uh, two hours of unreleased footage of Bob, really rare and very precious stuff. And I would tell Bob's life story in between the clips so that that show, The Life of Bob Marley, was constantly changing. It is to this day because I learn new things all the time. And um, I've done it in the outback in Australia for Aboriginal people. I've done it at the bottom of the Grand Canyon for the Havasupai Indians who live there who feel that Bob Marley is the fulfillment of an ancient uh, Supai prophecy that says when Chief Crazy Horse returns to Earth, he will return as a black man to lead the red man forward to his new freedom. And they believe that Bob Marley is that person. Um, yeah, I've done it in a lot of weird places. I was the first- Durango, Colorado. Durango, right after Buddy <laughs> played under the double rainbow. That was an incredible show. That was the th thunder and lightning that night, it was really strong. Um, I was the first speaker at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm the most frequent. I've, I've done nine shows there. I've played the Grammy Museum. Recently, um, I, I, uh, my, my latest reggae book is called uh, So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley. And um, I was invited to read at the Library of Congress. And that's up on the Internet. If you put my name in LOC, Library of Congress, you'll see the talk. And um, uh, the Smithsonian, I've done the show there. Yeah, I've, I've probably done the show uh, seven or 800 times. And it's, it's never the same show twice. Uh, Bob is the gift that keeps on giving, Stevie, right? Straight up. Did Bob you know, Bob... Did you ever talk about LSD with Bob? Bob was not into those kinds of drugs at all. The Rastas are not into uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms. Uh, I, I've never met a Jamaican who's done acid. How, how about you, Stevie? Do you find any acid at all in the reggae community? Well, absolutely, yeah. You know, from uh, especially in my tenure at Reggae on the River, I mean, that's a drug fest in, in general. Are, but are you talking about Americans and not Jamaicans? Yeah, a few, I've known Jamaicans that have uh, taken psilocybin, but they're not really into white powdered face drugs as they would consider LSD to be. But they're, you know, psilocybin is legal, Roger, in Jamaica. And we have, with the Reconscious Medical Group has a project we're starting right now using psilocybin for 
profound experiences to help addicts heal. And so Jamaica has a long history of psilocybin, but you're right. Most of the people in Jamaica who are dealing with psilocybin are selling it to tourists mostly. So you don't find a large percentage of Jamaicans um, involved in psychedelics much more than much more than selling it. But you know, people may not know, Roger, how you met Bob Marley. Maybe you could tell our uh, audience here on the Adam Dunn Network on the Reconscious Medical Hour how you met Bob Marley. Well, in, in the summer of 1978, I was hired by a couple of Hollywood screenwriters to novelize two screenplays, and we rented an A-frame on a mountaintop in Big Sur, and I wrote two novels in three months. And um, while we were there, Bob uh, had booked two shows in the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium, and we got tickets for both of them. We got there really early, and we were among the first people into the auditorium. And if you've ever been in there, it's like a high school gym. They've got bleachers on three sides, and uh, the stage is about four feet tall. It's just like being at a high school dance. And when we, we were among the first people to, to go into the hall, and the soundboard was set up right in the middle of the dance floor. And there was a tall, skinny guy with little nubber dreadlocks just starting to sprout standing by the soundboard. And we figured he had something to do with the band. And I went up and I said, pardon me, sir, but uh, are you going to do Waiting in Vain tonight? And he says, why? I said, oh, that's my favorite Bob Marley song, especially that incredible lead guitar that Junior Marvin plays in the middle of it. And he said, you want to meet Bob? Yeah, <laughs> can I bring my wife? And he said, sure. So Mary and I go walking down this long, long corridor to get backstage. And he says, what's your name? I said, I'm Roger. This is Mary, my wife. He says, hi, I'm Junior Marvin. So I said the right thing to the right guy at the right time. And we go back into the dressing room. And it was like a convention of zombies. There wasn't a sound in the room. And they had pushed four huge cafeteria tables together to make a gigantic table. And, and everybody was sitting, well, they were, so, they were socially distancing from each other, like at least <laughs> six, six feet apart. And everybody had a little anthill of herb in front of them and their individual pack of rolling papers. And nobody was saying anything to anybody. And I had a poster um, that somebody was giving out in line to promote a show three nights later at the... Uh, uh, Greek theater in Berkeley, and Junior said, why don't you ask Bob to sign it? I go, oh, right. <laughs> I mean, I was just awestruck. I was so starstruck by being there. And um, he introduced me to Bob, and Bob was totally in the heights. He was in into red, as Jamaicans say. And I asked him if he would do Waiting in Vain, and he kind of looked up, and he said, oh, maybe... But of course, he never did that song because the I-3 thought it was about his girlfriend, Cindy Breakspear, and Rita wouldn't sing it. And Judy kind of stood out because she was in solidarity with Rita. and Marcia didn't care one way or the other. But his greatest love song, and they only did it once live up in Montreal. Um, so uh, Junior took me around the table, introduced me to the entire band, and everybody signed the, the poster. And eventually, all three, I3, the backup singers, signed it. And now I have it framed, and there are 41 signatures on it. And when I loaned it to the Grammy Museum recently for an exhibition on Marley that they did, they insured that for $75,000. Wow. So I'm hoping that that will be a centerpiece in a museum in Montego Bay when I complete a deal to sell my archives to Jamaica. Tell the people a little bit about the Bob Marley archives that you're sitting in. You're in Echo Park in, in L.A. right now, and your basement is completely full of every reggae memorabilia thing you could ever imagine, from a Jamaican Barbie doll to a pinup of Bob Marley and everything else. Tell the people a little bit about what your collection consists of. Everything I've found that has to do with reggae, Rasta, and Jamaica since June of 1973 I read an article in Rolling Stone by a gonzo journalist named Michael Thomas from Australia who said, reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. 
I said, man, that's I don't know, real talk right there. I don't know what that means, but I got to find this right now. <laughs> and I was living in Berkeley and I went out and I found a used copy of Catch of Fire, Bob's first album with the Zippo lighter cover. The lighter. Uh, two yeah. and a quarter. And I figured, well, I'll take a chance. You know, it's worth a couple of bucks. And I couldn't believe how good it was. And the next night I saw The Harder They Come in a little theater on the north side of campus in Berkeley, held about 40 people. And when the chalice scene in Harder They Come came on the screen, everybody in the theater lit up. And you couldn't see the screen for all the smoke in the theater. And on the way home, I bought the soundtrack. And my life changed forever from from those two days. And I've been on a reggae trot ever since. Uh, the what now is known as Roger Stephens Reggae Archives fill seven rooms of the house, floor to ceiling. And all the grooviest things in the collection have been in storage since 2001. Uh, I had an exhibition uh, of about 6,000 items framed at the Queen Mary in Long Beach. Did you see that, Stevie? Absolutely. I was there. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like an interactive museum of reggae. Man, I was in there drooling. It was amazing. Yeah, and it's not just a Marley exhibition. Marley is 10% of the collection, obviously the most valuable, most important stuff, but I pay just as much attention to Joe Higgs and Alton Ellis and Slim Smith and Count Ossie and all the great people whose work deserves to live as long as Bob Marley's work. So it's a, it's a collection that now uh, shows the huge internationalization of, of reggae music. Let me grab something. And if you guys want a piece of Roger's archives, you can get it right here. This is one of Roger's many books. This is called The Reggae Scrapbook. And this book right here is jam-packed with all kinds of crazy pictures and fold-outs and different stuff. It's called The Reggae Scrapbook, and it's forward by Toots Hibbert, an introduction by Stephen Davis. And it's Roger Steffens and Peter Simon's Reggae Scrapbook. If you're interested in Bob Marley and the music, here's another book of Roger's called the, called the Bob Marley and the Whalers, The Definitive Discography. And this is from Leroy jo Jody Pearson and Roger Steffens. And this traces all the music of Bob, everything ever written and recorded with really amazing info about it. And then you've also got, Roger has so many books, but here's the one called The World of Reggae. And That's this one has a lot of Bob Marley in too. What's that, Roger? That's the catalog for the Queen Mary show. It's got about 1,600 illustrations, about a quarter of what was on display. And that picture is one I took of Bob in 79 in the dressing room in San Diego that I call the Rasta Thinker, because how many people can you just see the hair and know exactly who it is? Straight uh, up. So I have a, a good friend in the Ivory Coast whose name, as you see here, is Vital Apathy. <laughs> Not any run-of-the-mill apathy, but vital apathy and he sent me this poster for negro muffin which is a reggae band in abidjan in the ivory coast so i love the internationalization of of the music i've got about thirty thousand flyers from all over the world i just got a huge package from paris from someone who sent me the past 12 years of all the reggae shows in paris and uh, I, I'm hoping the museum will feature a big international section, too, because Jamaicans are so naive about their culture. They, they really have no idea how far it's reached. And somebody said to me recently, anything over five years old uh, is of no interest at all to Jamaicans. So I want to help change that. How did, how did your, um, your, you got your introduction to Bob in Santa Cruz, but you also went on tour with Bob. What year was that? And tell was, us a little about your tour with Bob Marley. Yeah, that was the following year. Uh, Hank Holmes and I uh, had just started the reggae beat in October of 79. And uh, we, got a, we were on the air for about five weeks when we got a call from Island Records saying, would you mind going on the road for two weeks with Bob Marley? <laughs> yeah, twist my arm, man. And we did, and we got to spend an awful lot of uh, private time with him. It, it was a fascinating experience to watch how he interacted with people and how humble he was. And uh, he was a watcher. He, he was pretty quiet, you know. He, but if, if there were 50 people in the room, uh, the whole center of attention was Bob at all times. He controlled every attitude in that room. And uh, I got to put together a couple of evenings when he wasn't working 
to show him two uh, documentary films that he had never seen before. Uh, one was um, the Smile Jamaica uh, documentary and concert um, that Jeff Walker had put together. Jeff Walker was an American who was Bob's publicist on the West Coast for Island Records. And he was uh, in Jamaica at the time Bob was shot and filmed him and then filmed the concert itself. And then the second night, um, a Canadian, uh, a couple of Canadians, uh, Randy Tourneau and Jim Lewis, were editing uh, Heartland Reggae, which is a, a record of the One Love Peace concert when uh, Bob returned from exile after being shot in 1978. And he had never seen either film, the Smile Jamaica film or the One Love concert film before. So it was fascinating to sit in a room with about 50 people at the Sunset Marquee and watch Bob watch Bob. And there, of course, there's that famous image of Bob holding the hands aloft of Michael Manley and the Edward Siaga, the opposition leader, and making this benediction to Rastafari. And after he watched that, he was asked what was going through his mind at that moment, standing between these two men in whose names thousands of people have been murdered in the gang wars. And Bob said, well, I'm a no politician, but if I'm not a politician, only one thing for me to do, kill them both. <laughs> With music. <laughs> yeah. And then the last time I saw Bob was two days later at the Roxy, uh, we, he did a three-hour sound check all by himself, playing all the instruments himself. And the first hour, he kept singing something over and over and over again about redemption. Yeah. He was an amazing man. He, you know, he gave away almost all his money. Um, he, according to Colin Leslie, his business manager, and it's in my book, um, Bob probably supported close to 6,000 people a month. And of course, when he died, Rita Marley cut everybody off. Yeah. He lived. So, he lived so Roger, you're inside the Reconscious Medical Hour. You know, one of our missions in this is to educate people. And we've gotten quite an education today. And we appreciate you joining our program. You know, one of our missions is to awaken people to their fullest potential. And that's one of the reasons why we call it reconscious. How do you think psychedelics plays a role in um, changing our world? Because it, it's, it's uh, so much things to say right now. It's pretty dread and a Gideon. And we need, I believe and know that now's a really good time for us to help inspire the next generation of people. How do you think psychedelics, Roger, could play a role in the, in the re-enlightenment of the human race? Well, what was the major movement in the mid-60s? Love-ins. Love-ins. The one started here in L.A. was by our daughter's godfather, Peter Bergman, from the Firesign Theater. It was in Griffith Park, the first L.A. love-in. That's what, that's what conscious use of acid instills in people. A, a euphoric attitude of our interconnectedness. It's, it, it's just, it's cliche when you talk about it, but it's, it's so true, you know, peace and love. Ringo Starr is still saying that the minute you say, meet Ringo, all right, brother, peace and love, you know, it never grows old and we'll continue to be old hippies uh, to say it as long as we live until people really listen. Speaking of the Beatles and, and acid, um, Timothy Leary told me about being in the hotel room in Montreal when they recorded Give Peace a Chance. And he said, when they asked me to sing on it, I was thinking, you know, they're all vegetarians and uh, vegans, really. And I thought they were singing Give Peas a Chance. I said, all right, what's wrong with peas? All right, Give Peas a Chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crazy. <laughs> you know, Dr. Mark, I, I want to ask you, what, uh, probably the same question, what, what is the most useful quality of an intelligent, conscious use of LSD? 
I think if it can bring us to realize our interconnectedness with one another and with the spiritual realm, if it can give us that knowledge and that wisdom and that feeling of that connection, that's the most powerful tool. Right? Yeah. And it'll change the world. You know, maybe we'll all understand what Bob was talking about a little bit more. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. blowing in the wind. Well, Bob's philosophy was one love. The greatest album of his life was Survival. And I was on the tour, I was on tour with the Whalers in 2013 for two months in the winter when they revived the Survival album. That was the tour I was originally on with Marley. And I was their opening act in 2013, the Whalers band. And uh, I would explain the lyrics and the importance of that album as Bob's mature statement. Um, there were a pair of albums Bob made that are militant classics. His first solo album, uh, Natty Dread, with songs like, I feel like bombing a church now that I know the preacher is lying. Who's going to stay inside when the freedom fighters are fighting? But then he got shot and he reevaluated things and he realized violence, eye for an eye, just makes everybody blind. And in order to change the world, he said, we must change ourselves and that change will radiate outwards. And that change, that philosophy that is so necessary is one love. And on the dawn of the new millennium, the BBC did a 24 hour around the world coverage as each time zone came into the century. And at the beginning of each hour in all these different countries and all these different languages, people gathered together to sing one love and it became the anthem of the millennium, the one song that everybody around the world knew and, and could, could sing with total conviction. Um, and Bob was the artist of the century. Bob was the most important artist of the 20th century, hands down, the man whose work is going to be sung as long as people are allowed to live on the planet. And um, I don't think we'll ever see his life again in our lifetimes. And, and you see... <sighs> Where's the great art that's going to start coming out from this pandemic? I have, have you guys heard the, uh, the Rolling Stones living in uh, a ghost town? Powerful yeah. tune. Powerful tune. Roger's referring to a brand new Rolling Stones singer that was just released, and it's heavy. Really good. And the video is fantastic. You, you've seen it, Mark? Yeah. We're going to get some good art coming out of this. Yeah. I can't wait. And, and, you know, this program will be aired, you know, for the rest of eternity. So I want everyone that watches this program, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, we're right in the middle of the COVID-19 um, home isolation and social distancing. And this is a rare opportunity in my book. It's a rare opportunity to have that awakening that Roger was part of in the 60s and 70s. And with the summer of love, you know, brought so much love to the people through the use of psychedelics and mind expansion, where people became the ultimate view of themselves. And my hope in, in these times right now, Roger, is for people to take I think we lost you, Yeah, Stevie. your audio went out, Stevie, all of a sudden. Stevie. <laughs> We can't hear you, Stevie. Oh, you lost me. Oh, there, there we you. go. Whatever you yeah. did is good. Oh, okay. Should I do that again? For about 30 <laughs> seconds now, yeah. Not 30 seconds, yeah. like 10 seconds or so, yeah. Yeah, so what I was saying is, you know, Roger Steffens has been um, speaking to us today about the, the potential of the human condition and people being their ultimate selves. And the psychedelic revolution of the 60s and 70s gave everybody a glimpse of what was going on. So in the future, when people watch this show, I want you all to realize that we're right in the middle of the COVID-19, which has been one of the most uh, drastic changes that we've ever seen globally, and especially here in Asatica. And it's an opportunity for all of us to maybe regain uh, who our original selves is. And part of the Reconscious Medical Group uh, mission is to jumpstart people into that journey by prying open your third eye 
and give you the ultimate chance to be your ultimate individual self. So when you're watching this 20 years, 30 years, 100 years from now, I want you to remember it started right here on the Reconscious Medical Hour, right here on the Adam Dunn Network. Roger, I want to—I really appreciate you coming on the show today. You're, I could talk to you for the rest of my life and, and never be bored with everything you have to say. So much thing to say. We really appreciate love what you brought today to the program, you know, with the, with your um, varied career of what you've done. And I have a deep respect for my elders and you as one of my elders, you're an inspiration to me and all the people that I know that watch this program. So thank you, my brother. Thank you. And I'd like to leave you with the immortal words of the Zen exterminator poet, Bob Watt, who said, don't forget, I am you disguised. There you have it. The voice sound of Roger Steffens right here on the Reconscious Medical Hour. We're here every Sunday at 420 Mountain Time. And you can also continue to watch this program. It'll be posted on YouTube for the ever. This is the Power of the Trinity, our third epic sode of the Reconscious Medical Hour. And again, the Reconscious Medical Group is a, is a, a creation by the man Dr. Mark with a K, Dr. Mark Bronstein. And he's led, leading a revolution in consciousness through the use of conscious use, ceremonial clinical use of psychedelics to help with personal growth, to help people with addiction, and to offer people the opportunity to see and experience their original, authentic selves. And we, we love and really appreciate everyone who's tuned in and turned on to us today. We want to thank Face of Base, our engineer who does such a great job and is offering us this unique opportunity to bring this reconscious message to the world. Dr. Mark, I want to thank you for being who you are and helping us make this happen. Thanks, Stevie. And Roger, thanks again, man. Really crucial interview today. Thanks for sharing your stories of Timothy Leary, Bob Marley, Bob Watts, <laughs> Albert Hoffman. Man, we'd love to have you back on and hear more. Hear some of those Albert Hoffman stories. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Thank you so much, Mark, Stevie, and Ace of Ace. It was really a joy to spend Sunday afternoon with you. We may be quarantined, but we're not quiet. That's for real. Okay, so make a joyful noise under the people. Tell everybody about the Reconscious Medical Hour right here on the Adam Nut Dunn Network. We love each and every one of you. Stay in power. One love. <laughs>